there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, you're very welcome to Your Politics, RTE's poli weekly political chat with our team here in Leinster House. Our reporters Sandra Hurley and Juliet Gash are with me, Anya Lawler. Uh, for those watching us on News Now Live, uh, we are the three who are going to be with you for the regular podcast. For those who are going to be listening back uh, wherever you get your podcasts, you're going to have a chance to hear an extended version uh, with our correspondent Paul Cunningham in Tel Aviv on the dreadful events uh, unfolding there in the Middle East uh, nearly three weeks now. And Paul um, has done a long interview with us that we recorded earlier. So that'll be going out in the extended version later. But let's get back to mm -hmm. Leinster House uh, and let's get back to the big news of the week. And the big news of the week was something we don't we haven't really seen it on this scale, have mm -hmm. we, Sandra, in a long time? A big cabinet row. Yes, exactly. It's pretty unusual in the early stages of the coalition government. There was definitely some cabinet rows and maybe not quite as angry as I'm told this one was. Uh, but since then, they've got this architecture in place where the three party leaders generally agree things the night before or they're run through cabinet committees. So they're kind of proofed before they get to the cabinet table. But on Tuesday, they met, they went through the cabinet agenda. And then I understand that the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, said that... Um, the integration minister, Roger O'Gorman, wanted to introduce something under any other business. I'm also told that's not typical. You don't do that generally. So it was uh, a, a departure, certainly. And he wanted to raise uh, issues around the provisions for Ukrainians coming to Ireland and essentially how tight the accommodation is coming. He's been pushing to make changes, it seems, uh, and reduce the offering of uh, in-state accommodation perhaps mm -hmm. to 90 days. And he wanted to discuss that at Cabinet. But generally, these things are done through a memo. So and just on that, because <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the way that Cabinet government works, in particular a three-way coalition, and also the roles of the departments and the senior civil servants and proposals being worked through, there is a very firm structure there. So mm. a minister bringing up a topic as politically big as the refugee provision here in Ireland under any other business, it's kind of a, like a political grenade going off, isn't it? Yes, I, I'm told there was quite an angry response from the Thonish, the Micheál Martin. This is just simply not how business is done. And it did seem like the Fianna Fáil side were kind of kept out of the loop on this. Now, Micheál Martin was part of that meeting the night before, but he attended virtually. He dialed into the three party leaders meeting. Apparently it was discussed, but um, no agreement was reached. And he certainly... Uh, was not impressed, I'm told, with what was suggested by Roderick O'Gorman. Uh, in particular, he was concerned about education. What, what about children in state accommodation? What are they going to get in, instead of going, being allowed to attend school straight away? There's a suggestion that maybe they might get on-site tuition, but then what would happen after the 90 days? Uh, so definitely a lot of tension around the cabinet mm -hmm. um, 
in uh, related to that discussion that of course all then leaked several hours later so it really has been one of the biggest cabinet upsets that we've seen yes. in this government and as you mentioned the area is just so contentious this is a major policy change and it's not the typical way of doing it and of course this new policy proposal from Roderick O'Gorman Juliet that um, there would be a limit on the length of time accommodation would be provided before people would move on of course Dara O'Brien, the housing minister, he wasn't necessarily the happiest about that aspect. Exactly. And this was something that was raised in the doll by Aintus Patter Tobin, who was like, no, this isn't just a row between ministers. It's a, it's a row about essentially pushing it from one department, Roderick O'Gorman's Children's and Integration Department, into Dara O'Brien's housing one. And we obviously already have a housing crisis. And where are people going to go after 90 days? And that question has yet to be answered. Now, I suppose government sources are very keen to stress that this is very much under consideration at the moment. And they're saying things like, look, well, Ireland is is among the last mm-hmm. in Europe to start to, to re-examine these proposals. It, we're coming up to two years after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February that... That'll be two years. And so they're saying that Ireland has, has yet to to review the offering, as they keep on calling it, to Ukrainians. And that has to be done now, which I think is a fair point. And they're also all now at pains to say the various party leaders, oh, no, 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 these reports of rows are are, are really much do about nothing. It's and the media blowing it all absolutely, up, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's no row. Look over there, you know. Uh, yeah, but the politics of it... Um, are interesting, isn't it? Particularly with local elections coming up next year. Uh, And the fact of the matter is we do know there is a massive shortage of housing for everybody. And there has been a massive increase in the number of people seeking housing. Yes. And I think what's been fascinating to watch over the past few days is the opposition not pushing this in the doll, essentially not touching it. It's not going to play well for them to fly this, other than I've heard people before Prophets, Breed Smith, uh, raise the situation. I spoke to one minister just in the past hour who said that in, this is a problem in every single constituency. And what they really don't want to see also are women and children maybe on the street in tents or in poor accommodation or homeless. So they do want all of this to act as a deterrent to stop people coming to Ireland or certainly to vastly mm-hmm. reduce the numbers. We're told there's still 650 a week coming to Ireland. Now, they haven't really said that bluntly, but they've said that they want people to understand the challenges that are, are uh, that Ireland has at the moment. So the language we're getting at the moment from people like Michael McGrath today said that people, they're going to look at this in the round. That means accommodation, social welfare and education potentially. Um Simon Harris, the higher education minister, said they have to calibrate the offering. He said, or sorry, Michal Martin said that they have to calibrate the offering. Simon Harris said that the status quo can't continue. So they all seem to be on the same page and agreed that something has to change. The offering has to be reduced, but it's how you do it. Accommodation is a big problem because if you... Uh, essentially let people go out of state accommodation, they're going to be homeless. They're not entitled to social housing or the housing assistance payment or anything like that. They're going to be on the street. That's going to look terrible. Um, So then I think they're probably looking at social welfare, reduce the benefits here. It does seem that Ireland offers more generous social welfare than other countries. And the other point being made by ministers Mm -hmm. is that Ireland is pretty much the last country of the EU member states to reduce the initial benefits that would have been introduced back when the war broke out. Except um, it's also worth bearing in mind, isn't it? Uh, didn't Simon have a report out this week that was only something like 27 HAP properties? That's housing assistance payment 
uh, properties. So if an awful lot of people were to be coming in there, it, un, unless there was a big increase there. Uh, and it's going to be a test, isn't it, Julie, at this in the next couple of weeks, given what Sandra's just been saying of the whole of government approach, because this has been a complaint, hasn't it, from some green quarters in a, for a while now that this issue, despite government saying there is a whole of government approach mm. to all of this, certainly um, some feeling on, on the green side that Roderick O'Gorman was being left to carry an awful lot of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I did think it was interesting, as Sandra said, you know, this, this was brought in under any other business. But, you know, apparently Leo Varadkar said, Roderick, to you. And it's just interesting to think of the machinations of that, you know, and that you do bring up, like as you say, throw this grenade in under any other business. It's just fascinating. But I mean, he has had such an outsized responsibility in terms of of dealing with the Ukrainian. I don't want the issue. You know, they're saying that 98,000 Ukrainians have arrived, 2% almost of the population of Ireland. And when you look at the numbers arriving in other European countries, it's, there's a huge difference, particularly considering the proximity, you know, the, the yeah. numbers of, 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 of Ukrainians taking uh, temporary protection in, in places like uh, Romania and Hungary, which are, you know, bordering with Ukraine are, are, are less. Uh, so so it, it does seem sort of at odds with, you know, looking at the bare facts yeah. of the situation of how far people might travel. Uh, and of course, Sandra, you're just back. Uh, you were with the president uh, in Italy last week, but while he was there, um, his comments on another conflict uh, certainly provoked quite a reaction. Yes, uh, Michael T. Higgins not holding back in Rome last week. Um, the Palestinian uh, situation for many decades is something he, he would have campaigned on, so he has always been very vocal on it, but he was very clear that Israel is breaking international law and that to sort of pre-announce that you're going to blockade uh, an area like that, that that is a, a break with international humanitarian law and it's simply unacceptable. But yes, a big reaction to those comments and his comments, of course, about Ursula von der Leyen. But we saw at the weekend that the Israeli ambassador to Ireland, Dana Ehrlich, said that the president was misinformed and she said he should not be making those comments. And I think she went so far as to say that what he said wasn't legal or it wasn't accurate or uh, was the phrase, something like that. And then the Labour leader, Ivana Bacic, on The Week in Politics, uh, said that... Um, she felt the Israeli ambassador had gone too far herself. So there's, we've seen a lot of back and forth around that uh, and a lot of, I suppose, a difficult diplomatic situation in relation to the Israeli ambassador here. We've seen some calls, not many, for the expulsion of the ambassador. Now, the Russian ambassador wasn't expelled after the invasion of Ukraine. That was something that was thrown around in the doll. So I don't think the Israeli ambassador is going to be uh, expelled either. But we did see a tweet from uh, a diplomat in the Israeli embassy, which was later deleted, suggesting that Ireland was funding these terror tunnels uh, for Hamas to use. Uh, Leo Vradkar, the Taoiseach, rejecting that outright in the doll. But it, it is pretty tense. And as we speak, Juliet, we don't know uh, the outcome uh, yet, but Europe's leaders meet him because, again, this is an issue that has been causing diplomatic tensions within Europe. It's also an issue uh, that's caused a huge diplomatic row uh, between the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, mm -hmm. uh, and Israel as well. So... A lot of diplomacy just, seems to be getting very frayed at the it's moment. It's so fraught. And to think as well that I think UN workers are, are now being denied visas by Israel to, to, to go and do humanitarian work uh, in Israel, in Gaza. I mean, it, it, it's just so depressing and so sad that it, it's mm -hmm. come to this. But they're, they're just, I mean, when you're talking about 27 member states, there are very, very different positions when it comes to, to this 
decades old, centuries old question yes. of, and it's not about whose side you're on because Ireland is very clearly saying we absolutely abhor what Hamas has done. However, we believe that Palestinians have a, a right to yeah. existence also. We'll have more uh, on that with Paul in a, in a few moments uh, for anyone who's listening on the playback facility. Just finally to wrap up with you, Sandra, um, leaving the diplomacy, the diplomatic row aside as well. President Higgins last week with that, do you want a president or a puppet? Mm-hmm. He certainly was making a stand, wasn't he, for the final mm-hmm. few years of his term? Yes, I think uh, President Michael D. Higgins is perhaps conscious of the fact that he's two years left out of what will be a 14-year term. He's not resiling. He didn't resile at the end of the week from anything he said at the beginning of the week. He completely doubled down and he said that people don't want a puppet. They don't want a silent president. He said people will have that opportunity again in a few years' time. Uh, But he, he did sort of push back against this suggestion I think you could interpret a comment from the Taoiseach Lee of Radcliffe during the week about this. He was asked about President Michael D's comments and he said he wasn't going to criticise him, but he said the constitution is very clear. It's for the government to articulate foreign policy. And you could interpret that as putting down a pretty clear marker. When that was put to the president, the president pushed back and said foreign policy is for everyone. It belongs to all of us. And he repeated all his earlier comments. So mm-hmm. I think uh, Michael D. Higgins very clear that he's not going to be quiet for the next two years. And flooding as well. He was commenting on that too, wasn't he? Yeah. And yes. there's been quite a... Re- th- I mean, the question is not whether the opinions are popular because a lot of what the president says we know from polling is clearly very popular. He's a very popular figure with the Irish public. Uh, But there has been some debate, hasn't there, if not from the government (laughs) publicly, uh, certainly from some political academics like David Farrell about the president's right to say these matters, whether he's intruding on government policy. Indeed, exactly. I mean, there is always this line of, of, of how, how far is he allowed to go in terms of commentary, but it does seem he is getting more vocal as as the years go by. Um, he's certainly not going gently into the good night. No, no, I, we expect to be hearing more over the next uh, couple of years on that. So that brings uh, the live part of this podcast to an end. So I'm going to go over now to our correspondent, Paul Cunningham, who spent the past few weeks in Tel Aviv. And at the moment, Paul, as we speak this Thursday, it seems to be not if, but when about the ground invasion. And this is after weeks of seeing Gaza pounded by Israeli airstrikes, the death toll, the blockade, calls for a ceasefire coming from many countries around the world. But as you've been writing in your blog, And as you're reporting, a feeling there in Israel that Ireland and much of the rest of the world that Israel now feels you are not with us, but we are going ahead. Yeah, you are not with us was uh, a comment made by a gentleman I met downtown in Tel Aviv. We were standing at a rally in support of um, the more than 220 people who've been taken hostage by Hamas into the Gaza Strip. And he inquired where I came from. I said, Ireland. And he just paused for a second and looked at me and said, you are not with us. And that is certainly something I felt uh, with my engagements with people in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or elsewhere. There is a sense that Ireland is pro-Palestinian and that it is not with Israel. Um, And to a certain extent, they feel that we're an outlier in the context of the European Union, that there's far more understanding of their position in countries like Germany, but Ireland consistently um, is against them. 
and that would be feeling a feeling not just limited to people on the street. It's something which is felt at the highest um, levels of government as well. It's an interesting point because I was talking to Malcolm Gafson. He's a chair of the Israel-Ireland Friendship League. He's been living in Israel for more than 40 years and he said it wasn't always that case. Um, he's originally from Dublin, now lives in um, uh, Israel and he was saying that like during the times of, say, the Six-Day War in 1967 or the Yom Kippur War in 1973, that there were demonstrations in Ireland pro-Israeli and that was a feeling that this was a small country which was in danger of being wiped out by its neighbours and that the Irish mood was more in favour and pro-Israeli. Um, he felt things changed probably around 1987 up to 1993 and when you had the Intifada or uprising, uh, particularly in the West Bank, where you had... Um, the frustration of Palestinians who felt that they were living under occupation, that they didn't have any power themselves. And that turned into an awful lot of rioting. It's sometimes known as the Stone Intifada. Um, and that's where Ireland's perception changed among the public, at least, and that they became more Palestinian leaning than uh, uh, pro-Israeli. But certainly today, um, anyone you talk to, you say Ireland, they think pro-Palestinian. That's the Israeli perspective. And of course, in Ireland and around the rest of the world, um, what people have been seeing are some of the pictures coming out of Gaza. And again, there's a lot of the fog of war, but there is no doubting. Even the IDF itself uh, is reporting the amount of munitions being dropped on Gaza. And this is falling on a population of more than two million people in a tiny, tiny area. Yeah, it is incredibly densely populated, sometimes called one of the most densely populated populated place in the world. And, you know, this is the third week of Israel's bombardment. And if you take just one day, um, they dropped 400 um, bombs on different sites within the Gaza Strip. Um, I think it was um, the Social Democrats leader, Holly Kern, saying that's half the size of um, County Louth. And you're having that level of bombardment continuing day after day. As you said, you've got, I think it's 2.3 million people living in the Gaza Strip. And they are living underneath that bombardment and at the same time, you've got a siege imposed by Israel. So the medical supplies, the food supplies, the water supplies are just being diminished all the time. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to eke out an existence in which they're one, on the one hand, trying to protect themselves from those airstrikes. And yet at the same time, have to go out into the open to try and find food, uh, to try and find water, which is shrinking all the time. I mean, one of the statistics which jumps out at me is the idea that you've got 1.4 million people displaced. That's of a population of 2.3 million and that was on the orders of the Israeli military demanding that anyone who's living in the north of Gaza had to move south or otherwise they could be considered a Hamas sympathiser and yet there's nothing in the south for these people and we thought that humanitarian aid when it started to flow 20 trucks on Saturday that that could you know build up mm -hmm. to what the UN says is needed 100 trucks a day every day for weeks and it just hasn't happened. And of course Things are getting desperate, Unruh now say. They may not be able to continue their operations because even the trickle that has been coming in, they need fuel and they're not getting it. Yeah, and that's, a, that's once again, it's a point of war. Um, the United Nations is saying it needs that fuel to power the hospitals, to keep those incubators open, to keep um, those uh, operating theatres open. They say they need fuel because they need to get um, desalinisation plants open because that's able to give the fresh water to the people who I think one UN um, official said they're down to, people are down to one litre a day. Um, it's still 25, 27, 28 degrees here. It gets really, really hot. Um, but 
from Israel's perspective, they say that they're not letting the fuel in because Hamas has lots of fuel and it could divert it instead of from its military war aims and firing off thousands of rockets. It could instead give it to the humanitarian purposes. And they're saying, if you want fuel, Hamas can give it to you. And if they don't give it to you, well, that's that's Hamas's problem, not ours. And relations, as this situation worsens, relations between the United Nations Secretary General and Israel, we've seen the diplomatic controversy there. We've seen the failure to agree resolutions at the UN Council as well. Yeah, um, certainly the UN Security Council being blocked in the time of conflict isn't unusual when you've got some of those five permanent members taking different views, Russia and China on one side, the United States on the other. So to a certain extent, maybe that is to be expected. I think what is different is the manner in which the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, got involved. I mean, he was taking a leadership role. He he flew to the gates of uh, the Rafa crossing between Egypt and Gaza and was banging the, sounding the bell and saying, we need to get in aid now. People are going to die. Then the next thing he's back over is addressing the UN Security Council and he did two things. One which was to condemn Hamas for its killings and for its ongoing rocket attacks. And at the same time, he also had a a real go at Israel saying it was breaching international law and the manner in which it was prosecuting the war, both the bombings and also um, the humanitarian situation, which is so dire. But he went on further and said that, and this is what I think really um, got to the Israeli delegation, that um, Hamas didn't come out of a vacuum, that it is born out of 56 years of occupation and Palestinian land being devoured. And it was at that point the Israeli delegation demanded his resignation and now you've got this huge gulf between the two sides and that's important because the UN and Israel need to cooperate if we are to get a humanitarian corridor into Gaza. So that's all the tragedy on, on, on the large scale, but it's the human stories as well that resonate. And some of the people you've met this week, Paul, and interviewed, tell us about them. Well, I suppose just by starting, it's a huge frustration to me as a journalist that I'm not able to be inside Gaza. I'm not able to report from Gaza. It has been sealed off and no journalists are there. So it puts um, journalists in a difficult situation. There are journalists inside um, Gaza who are reporting from them, many of them Gazans, and they're very brave in what they do. And the last statistic I saw from the Committee to Protect Journalists, 19 journalists inside Gaza um, have been killed in the past two and a half weeks, which is an incredible number. Um, But I've been reporting, as you said, from um, the Israeli side, uh, trying as much as possible to get stories from both sides. One of the things I did yesterday was to go down to the Dead Sea, where um, there's uh, a number of people from the Be'eri kibbutz, um, which was very close to Gaza. Um, it was described by Irishman Tom Hand as paradise on earth. There was around 1,100 people living there. And then on October 7th, it all changed um, because it was overrun by Hamas. And the last statistics I saw were that, so out of that population of about 1,100 or 1,200, 108 were killed and 70 um, were either abducted or still missing. They're still searching the area because so many homes were busy. Forensic teams have to decide if among the ashes you've got um, human remains. And it is, unfortunately, just a very graphic story. Tom Hand, the Dubliner who lived in England and then moved on to Israel, n- not Jewish, just someone who ended up living there for decades. His eight-year-old daughter was killed um, by uh, Hamas on that night. He has yet to get her body because there's so many victims being dealt with by the Israeli authorities in relation to identification. So he's hoping to get her body back soon. His um, former wife was also killed. Um, And then another man I was speaking to near Shani, 
his 16-year-old son, um, Amit, was taken out of the house. He was put into the back of a car and he's now believed to be somewhere in Gaza, most likely in some one of those underground tunnels and kept there as a bargaining chip by Hamas. And actually, Paul, we I don't normally <laughs> give shout outs to other podcasts, but um, the BBC, the conflict po- podcast on Israel-Gaza, at least you said, has a really good interview with their reporter in Gaza, Rushdie Abu Alouf, talking about trying to report when you're going through, the, you know, when you're one of the people living uh, under that bombardment. And uh, it's it's certainly one that's worth a listen. There was another moment, P- Paul, in those human moments that stood out uh, this week. And that was one um, of the very few hostages who've been released, one of the four, um, an elderly lady, Yavshaved Lifshitz. And there was a moment when she was being handed over where she turned around and she said shalom and touched the hand of her Hamas captor. Yeah. That was a very precious moment in an increasingly bleak um, situation. It was because she, by saying that word, you know, peace, it it touched upon, um, I guess, all of us, the idea that at some point this war will end and at some point uh, there will have to be some form of rapprochement and we heard from the French President Emmanuel Macron during the week he was talking about how we needed to have a new dynamic to re-establish some form of negotiation and secure that two-state solution. That's the big picture but you're right that 85-year-old woman touching the hand of her abductor and the story behind that is that um, she was a long-time peace campaigner herself and that she and her husband for more than a decade had been taking children from Gaza who required medical treatment including oncology treatment and she used to take them to hospitals in Israel well, once they got the treatment, then she would drive them back to Gaza and ensure they got back across the border. Now, her husband, who I think is 82, he's still held captive in what she described as a spider web of tunnels underneath um, the ground in Gaza. The Hamas seems to have two levels. You've got ground level, but un- underneath it, all of those tunnels we've heard so much about. And her husband is still there. That's all from your politics for now. Follow and subscribe to Stay in Touch and we're back next Thursday. Talk then. 